Hello, it is really an honor to be here with you and have an opportunity to look at God's Word together. Two weeks ago, Sarah unpacked the beginning of chapter 6 in which she highlighted unbelief. In contrast to chapter 5 where we saw profound faith. And she also discussed the cost of discipleship for those who follow Christ. Now let's look at the second half of chapter 6 in which we'll see one of those themes present. These verses discuss two well-known miracles, the feeding of 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. To begin with, the feeding of the 5,000. This happens to be the only miracle to appear in all four Gospels. Jesus had sent the disciples out to preach and to heal, and as they returned from their mission, he called them away for a private time of rest and rejuvenation. The apostles return, and they begin telling Jesus all that they had done and taught. Can you imagine what stories the disciples had to share with Jesus as the audience? Lord, miracles happened. Lord, I mean us, simple guys who used to fish and collect taxes. We healed. We preached about you. Strong faith, amazing changes in their lives, powerful ministry. Walking day by day with Jesus, a consistent climb of faith, Selfless service and trust and onward ho they went, right? Wrong. Maybe like me, you resonate with the disciples. These men truly loved Jesus, yet, yet we see how they move from amazing faith and fruitfulness to hard-heartedness and unbelief. So let's look at the two stories which follow the rest of this chapter. And as I mentioned, <clears throat> after the time of sharing and their mission trip was over, Jesus invited the disciples to come with him to a desolate place to rest. We read that they had been so busy that they had not even had enough time to eat, and they certainly must have been exhausted. But rather than finding a quiet place to rest and be alone with Jesus, a crowd of people shows up waiting for them on the other side of the shore. Can you imagine? More needy people clamoring for attention. But verse 34 tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you know, that, shepherd, that sheep are super vulnerable animals and they don't do well if left to themselves. So even as, as Jesus was probably just as tired of, as the 12 disciples, he sees these people. He notices them. He knew that they were neglected and exploited by the religious leaders And they certainly were not cared for in light of their physical and spiritual needs. So the disciples, just an hour or two after sharing all their stories of miraculous ministry, what do they say? Jesus, send them away to take care of themselves. Now on the surface, the disciples' statement in verse 36 seems reasonable, and we could even argue compassionate. They're concerned about the people's needs. And I mean, in a way, we might say that Jesus was unreasonable. You give them something to eat. Think of them looking around at a crowd of 5,000 people and wondering, what could he possibly mean, us feed them? I wonder if any of them gave any that look that sometimes we do, which non-verbally communicates, are you serious? Really? But here's what I want to highlight in this story. Remember, the disciples are fresh off the mission field in which they exhibit the authority of Jesus through healing, casting out demons, and teaching. They were sent out with no money, no food, and they certainly had experienced God provide for them while they were out. 
It seems that in this response, Jesus is challenging them to greater faith and action. Yet in verse 37, we see the disciples' very human and actually very natural, logical response. It would cost 200 denarii worth of bread to feed them, they said. Had the disciples forgotten all that Jesus, or excuse me, had the disciples forgotten all that had just taken place not even a day ago? And to be fair, their question back to Jesus does seem reasonable and practical. A denarius was worth about a day's wage for a laborer. And it's hard to know exactly how much that is, but one commentator said that 200 denarii would be equivalent to about $10,000 today. Maybe like me, you've always read this passage and focused on Jesus' compassion and how he miraculously provided for the sheep who needed a shepherd. However, if we shift our focus to disciples, we see that they are just like us. They saw, believed, proclaimed, then couldn't believe. They participated in miraculous ministry, then forgot about God's power and were at a loss as to how to follow Jesus' commands. Here are a couple ways I've seen the same up-and-down faith in my own life. I'm a support-raising missionary, and when I first engaged the support-raising process, it felt scary and humbling, to say the least. Then God stepped in through a lavish act of generosity to supply my needs. Then I needed to find a place to live out here. Struggle, fear, anxiety. Would God provide for me again? He did, and it's been a joy in my current living situation. But like the disciples, I can easily be soft-hearted and content with Jesus when things seem to be flowing so well and gifts are raining down. Then, when he asks me to step out in faith again, I wrestle. Whether it's trusting his provision needing to sense his love and comfort, or when he asks me to die to self. Every time Jesus asks us to do something, he's with us and watching over us. And so let's see what happens in the next narrative to gain a little more insight. Mark 6, verses 45 through 52, tells us the story of Jesus walking on water. And first, a quick side story. I'm from Kansas, and the part of the state that I grew up in is mostly farmland. So picture miles and miles of open spaces, and it's extremely flat, and the only vegetation is that which is going to end up in your next meal. As the Wizard of Oz famously illustrated, uh, the Kansas landscape tends to be incredibly windy. That is, even when there aren't tornadoes. And with few trees to block the wind, it was normal for us to have 40, 50-mile-an-hour wind days. Um, It would be so windy that we would literally choose not to go outside because we didn't want to have to fight the wind. When I was a little girl, I used to ride my bike all over town. Sometimes it would be so windy, as I attempted to ride my bike, I would literally not make any progress. Uh, In fact, sometimes the wind would blow us backwards, or if an unexpected side gust would come, it would sometimes blow us over on our bicycles. So needless to say, I have respect for the power of wind. In these verses, we read the disciples are straining to make headway against large gusts of wind. It mentions that this is taking place during the fourth watch of night, which would be somewhere around 3 to 6 a.m. And I can't help but wonder how exhausted they were as they exerted energy, rowing for hours against the wind. And remember, Jesus was the one who sent them out in these boats. So in the midst of their struggle and fear, 
Jesus comes strolling by on the water. Literally, he's walking on the water. They, of course, were terrified. I mean, who wouldn't be? Now, until I began studying this passage for our Bible study, I'd always looked at this story and focused on Jesus' calming, loving words. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I imagine how he speaks that to me and calms my fears as I often need reminded that as he gets into the boat of my life, it is him who calms the wind. How might your heart need to hear those words today? Take heart, my beloved daughter. I'm right here. I see you. I'm with you. Do not be afraid. Those indeed are comforting words from our tender and compassionate Savior. But one more time, let's shift to the disciples and explore what's happening with them. The text says that as Jesus got into the boat, two things happened. One, the strong wind ceased. And two, the disciples were astonished. Why? Well, verse 52 adds a twist in the story that I, and maybe you too, have often overlooked. It says they were astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, the previous story, but their hearts were hardened. Sinclair Ferguson says, what had they not understood about the loaves? They had not learned from the miracle who Jesus really was. Earlier in the day, he had shown himself to be the shepherd of his people. They should have known that he would not abandon them in their troubles. They should have been trusting, but instead they were terrified. But what I want to focus on is, what does Jesus mean when he says their hearts were hardened? I looked up the definition of hardness of heart, and the Lexham Bible Dictionary defines it as the spiritual condition of persistent unresponsiveness to God and his word which can rise to the level of rejection and hostility. Apart from divinely granted repentance, this condition can harden to a permanent and unchanging state, leading to condemnation. Let me slow that down for us. Hardness of heart is three things. One, a spiritual condition of consistent, committed, unresponsiveness to God and his word. Two, the condition can escalate to rejecting antagonistic hatred towards God. And three, without God's gracious intervention and rescue, a person in this spiritual condition will suffer eternal condemnation. This is serious stuff. And we read about hardness of heart in other places throughout Scripture. In Exodus, we read how God used Pharaoh's hardened heart to lead the Israelites out of exile in Egypt. In Mark 10:5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, and he said, "Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment." We even read about it in the New Testament when Paul is talking to local leaders of, of the Jews in Rome. This is in Acts 28 verses 25 through 27, and it says that uh, those listening, some heard and believed, but others believe, disbelieved and they disagreed among themselves. But here's what I thought was interesting. As Paul is talking to this group of people, it says that they departed after Paul made one statement, which happened to be him quoting Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, which says this, 
the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In these examples and others throughout the Bible, we see that it is possible to see the power of God and the grace of Jesus at work, but to have your heart remain hardened. Furthermore, the disciples are an example of the fact that nearness to Jesus doesn't equate to real trust, nor does it guarantee genuine faith. Sinclair Ferguson says, It is possible for us to be hearers of God's word, yet to have hearts which are darkened and hardened towards it. So what does hardness of heart look like? Well, we could summarize it by saying it is a stubborn resistance to believe God, or unbelief. There's the theme that Sarah highlighted last week. I read a definition of unbelief in my Bible software that defined it as a lack of faith and trust in God that challenges his faithfulness and finds expression in disobedience and rebellion. I'll read that one more time. The definition of unbelief is a lack of faith and trust in God that challenges his faithfulness and finds expression in disobedience and rebellion. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I'm a lot more like the disciples than not. I have seen God be faithful in my life, yet when things don't go as I expected or hoped, I am quick to question his goodness. I have felt joy and peace that only he can provide, yet I often sit around swimming in fears, wondering when he's going to take that good thing away from me. And when suffering and challenges do come, I even go so far as shaking my fist in anger, blinding me to any of his unchanging characteristics while I ruminate over what I cannot see or understand. What does unbelief look like for you? We are all currently experiencing a season of suffering together, but behind the backdrop of a pandemic are dozens and dozens of personal hardships and challenges that threaten to trap us in our own little boxes of unbelief. As I explained the seriousness of hardness of heart earlier, we don't usually just end up in this place overnight. We often take small steps in that direction that are more subtle. Steps that might look like this. A woman in a tough marriage, little emotional connection with her husband. She starts looking up old friends, maybe some ex-boyfriends on social media, She's just looking, she tells herself, and what's the big deal anyway? She sees so many seemingly amazing marriages online. Love, care, doting husbands. Her heart grows mad at God, frustrated at her faith. It's not fair. Over time, this trajectory slowly grows into increasing disconnect with her husband, a refusal to talk to God about her feelings anymore, and bold steps towards marital unfaithfulness, or at the very least, emotional disconnect, hardness of heart. Or the woman who's just angry, 
Life is not turning out the way she's dreamed for so long. The way, the way that she's prayed for. She figures she's sacrificed so much for God, and this is what she gets? Loneliness? Disappointment? Weeks of feeling this way turn into months. Turn into retreating from other believers, then turn into years. She has to realize one day that she's become an embittered, edgy woman who used to be soft and honest with the Lord and others. But now she doesn't recognize who she is. And she certainly does not like who she's become. What about you? What about me? How do we have pain, disappointment, confusion in our lives? Our faith, relationship, circumstances, families... Suffering that has prompted us to perhaps not trust in the Lord, but to trust in ourselves and to turn away from him. If you're in a place like this now, no matter whatever circumstance that might be, there is hope. I have grown more thankful for the fact that God does have a remedy for hardness of heart. He offers us two things, repentance and grace. Repentance. Through Jesus, he offers us repentance and forgiveness of sin. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Repentance is turning to the Lord, which also opens us up to receive his comfort and the healing that we need for our broken hearts. And the second thing is a work of grace. By his grace, he does the softening work. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them, <clears throat> I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Our responsibility is to turn to him and seek forgiveness. God takes care of the rest including giving us the guidance that we need for the next steps of faith. Just as the disciples faced a strong headwind and seemingly made little progress, sometimes we too go nowhere in the headwinds of life. Jesus did not simply deliver the disciples to land, but he did enable them to continue their journey. I'm struck by the fact that God doesn't always remove our sufferings or challenges, but he does climb in our boats. He does calm the wind and he gives us strength to carry on. So, are you trying to face headwinds by rowing in your own strength? Are you trying to change your heart in your own power to somehow figure out just the right prayer or just the right way to make yourself a great, faithful Christian? Look up, sister. Jesus is with you, walking towards you. He will never leave you in the boat by yourself. Are you struggling to know how you'll ever muster up the love and energy to serve someone in your life? Does it seem that what you have to give isn't good enough or, is it, or just isn't enough? Look up, sister. Jesus is there ready to multiply what you have and make it plentiful. Are you astonished, amazed, or maybe even struggling to believe that Jesus really did these things? That, he's able, that, that he is able to see you, know you, love you personally and specifically, and help you grow into the woman he's created you to be? Look up, sister. 
and keep reading on. There's more for us to learn in the coming weeks. Jesus, the bread-multiplying, wave-walking Savior, is with us as this year closes out, and only he knows where he's taking us in 2021. Just as we read in the final verses as this chapter comes to a close, his kingdom is going forward, and his redemptive work in your life will continue until it's done. May we seek to humbly come before God through repenting of our unbelief, our hard hearts, and ask for his grace to recall his faithfulness in our lives so as to carry on with God's redemptive work. Let's pray. Father, please soften our hearts. Show us areas in which we have knowingly or unknowingly hardened ourselves to you and your truth. Thank you for Jesus and for your grace, which enables us to turn towards you. Help us to trust you with what we can't see, and help us to recall your faithfulness when the strong winds blow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.